Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Episode 34, Conflict. From his birth to his untimely death, conflict dominated Jesus' life. During his ministry, the Pharisees disagreed with Jesus about the Sabbath, purity, divorce, and even his style of ministry. Jesus called them out on pride, greed, and hypocrisy. Looking at how Jesus handled conflict serves as an example to those of us today who seek to follow him, as well as helps us understand his world and what he dealt with in his own ministry. If you'd like to watch a video of this class or download the course notes, visit restitutio.org. Here is part 10 of the historical Jesus conflict. I want to begin with this quote by George Soros Prabhu, who says, Conflict plays a large part in the gospel narratives of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is shown in conflict with Satan, with natural calamities, like storms, with mental illnesses, with religious leaders of his people, with the crowds, with his family, with his disciples. He's in conflict with his own instinctive clinging to his life when it comes in the way of the Father's will. Conflict, then, is not a secondary, dispensable element in the ministry of Jesus. It is of its essence. Not, for Jesus, the ecstasy of the frolicking Krishna, who is beyond all conflict, nor the serene smile of the Buddha, who was wholly untouched by it. His is a short and agitated ministry, ending in a violent and untimely death. That really got my attention. And when you look at Jesus' ministry, I mean, I'm trying to condense everything down. I'm trying to slice aspects of Jesus' ministry and present them to you. But they're all happening at the same time, right? So we've looked at how he's a kingdom preacher. We've looked at his ministry of healing and how he's a rabbi who teaches how to live and he has disciples and how he has this incredible relationship with his father, right? And now we're going to look at conflict in his ministry. What I'm going to do next after we, we get through this is look at the last week of his life because so, many, so much of the Gospels focus on just that period so I, I'm going to do that next. So I'm just going to look at conflict during his ministry before that, okay? And I think it's important that we don't conclude just because our life is at peace that God is with us, okay? And if there's chaos in your life, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong either, all right? Because Jesus' life was full of conflict. In fact, I had to work really hard to make this fit into the time that we have together. So uh, I want to look at basically two different things. The first is the Pharisees' issue with Jesus, and then I want to look at Jesus' issue with the Pharisees. Now, Jesus had conflict with the Samaritans. We already looked at that. They wouldn't give, show him hospitality that one time. Or the Herodians. We looked at that once before where the supporters of Herod Antipas were trying to arrest Jesus, and the Pharisees tipped him off. And Jesus says, go tell that fox today and tomorrow I do miracles, and then I'm going to go to Jerusalem. So, but really, in his ministry, Jesus conflicted with the Pharisees more than anyone else, by far. 
Now, during the last week, he starts to have conflict with the Sadducees. Okay? But right during his ministry, it's more the Pharisees. The Pharisees had three major criticisms of Jesus, or groupings of criticisms. One is they had legal disagreements. The Pharisees thought the law should be understood this way, and they didn't like how Jesus was interpreting it. Two, they challenged Jesus' legitimacy. They would ask him questions and, and, and try to challenge him. It's like, are you really a teacher? Are you really a prophet? Do you really know what you're talking about here? So they would challenge him. And then uh, the third is they had issues with Jesus' style of doing ministry. They just did not, did not like how he was doing what he was doing. Um, and so I want to look at these three aspects and then look at how Jesus criticized them because Jesus gives it right back to them. And uh, we'll see that certainly in Matthew 23. So the first thing that they have conflict with it, under legal disagreements here is the Sabbath. If you've read the Gospels, you know that it seems like the Sabbath is always this issue, right? And so there was this time the disciples were plucking grains, heads of grain. They were rubbing it in their hands. They were eating it as they were walking along the path. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, Why are your disciples doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus responded and said, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him. So Jesus points out that in the Bible, there's an example of somebody else that breaks the Sabbath and it seems like it was the right thing to do for them at that time. And then he says, the Sabbath was not made for man, but man, or the, sorry, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what Jesus is saying is that the Sabbath is, is something to bless. This is how I understand what he's saying. The Sabbath is made for people, right? We're not made to fulfill the Sabbath's guidelines to make this, you know, the Sabbath this great thing. It's, no, it's, it's, it's there to bless the people, right? What is the Sabbath? Take a day off work. That's what the Sabbath is. You're not slaves. Take a day off work. Um, and so that was Jesus' response. Now, I want to look at these other incidents because that, that one's a little different. These other incidents, it's when, when he heals on the Sabbath, okay, and it's important, I think, to notice, too, that Jesus, first of all, wasn't plucking the grains, the heads of grain. It was his disciples that were doing it. But he still stuck up for him anyhow because he basically said, look, this is not a big deal. You know, even if it was a loaf of bread, David did that. So this right here I want to look at is the man with the withered hand, the woman doubled over, the man with dropsy, the lame man at the Bethesda pool. Over and over, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Look at this uh, one example here. This is from Luke 13, verse 11. It says, And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. 18 years. She was bent over. Could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Can you just imagine the scene? You know, Jesus is in synagogue. We know that 
He was there teaching in the synagogue. He saw this woman, and she's bent over. You know, she can't, she can't straighten out. You know, when she looks at people, she ha she's always looking up at everyone. 18 years, she's got, I don't know what, what, if it was scoliosis or, or what kind of condition it was, but 18 years she suffered, you know, and Jesus saw her and healed her. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the, all the glorious things that were done by him. I want to share with you this quote by Amy Jill Levine, uh, a modern Jewish scholar who writes about this. She says, the story, the story of Jesus healing the bent over woman, highlights Jesus' action as in contradistinction from what the synagogue leader would have preferred. But the crowd, that is the Jewish majority, has no problem with Jesus healing the woman. And they would have recognized his argument to be a standard form for discussion of legal matters. He argues on the basis of what is called in Hebrew, a call v'homer, or from the lighter to the greater model. If you already do X, then you should surely do Y, which is even more important. So what Jesus is saying is like, look, you all probably this morning untied your donkey, brought it over to the water, right? The donkey was bound, you loosed the donkey, you brought it to the water. On the Sabbath, people do that because otherwise the donkey's going to have a bad Sabbath, right? And you don't want the donkey to have a bad Sabbath either. You know, God says it's a rest for the people and for the animals. Everybody should get a rest, even, even um, servants and, and everybody, sojourners. And he's like, look, if you're already doing that, this woman is bound by Satan. 18 years. Shouldn't, we, shouldn't I lose her on the Sabbath? So you can see how, you know, once you understand this sort of like strategy of argument, it really makes sense. Jesus is not defying the Sabbath itself. He's, he's doing it the right way. You see what I'm saying? I think a lot of times we look at this and we're like, oh, Jesus was just a, a, li a libertarian who was, said you could do whatever you want. That's not, that's not what he's doing. He keeps the Sabbath himself. Uh, she goes on to make this point. Jesus' healing itself is a matter of touch, which is not forbidden on the Sabbath. He makes no potions. He unties no cords. What he does is he says, you're healed, and then he touches her, and she's healed. After he healed the man with dropsy, Jesus said, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? So that was an, an understood exception on the Sabbath day, a lawful exception. Your kid falls in a well, you don't wait till the next day. You go in and you get the kid. Or, or if it's an animal that falls in, you get, you get him out. Um, and Jesus, you know, so, so why did he heal on the Sabbath? Jesus healed every day. 
Was you want him to stop healing one day a week? You know, it's not like it took a lot of this effort out of him where like a regular physician would have to examine you and do that reflex test on your knee to see if you're, you know, he's not, he's just saying, he says to the withered man, or the man with the withered hand, he says, stretch out your hand. That's all he says. I mean, that's not work. And besides that, even if it was work, the priests violate the Sabbath every week. Jesus points that out. They violate the Sabbath every week, lawfully, to serve in the temple. And look, if you're bound or bent over or you have a withered hand or whatever kind of chronic situation you got going on, let me tell you, you are going to embrace that Sabbath when you're set free. You're going to enjoy that Sabbath. And all the other people who have been providing for you and, and helping you along, they're going to enjoy that Sabbath more as well. So it's actually a pro-Sabbath thing that Jesus is doing, healing on the Sabbath. Another one of the legal disagreements they had was they saw Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands. And that's nothing to do with um, germs or anything like that. Germ theory was not available yet at that time. It was about the tradition of the elders. And so Jesus came back at them on the tradition of the elders, and he says to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so Jesus rejected those traditions of the fathers, those, those uh, commandments of men, as true doctrines. So he didn't even get into the debate over whether or not you should wash your hands. He's like, look, this is part of this body of tradition that I reject all of it anyhow as authoritative because it's just the commandments of men. He, we, we already have talked about divorce. You know, the Pharisees asked him a question about that. Uh, they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And we talked about that, and Jesus responded. It's not clear what position the Pharisees have on that subject, but it's another one of these legal disagreements where they're trying to see, what does Jesus say about Deuteronomy, where the law about divorce is written? Um, then there's the incident where the lawyer stood up to test Jesus and said to him, how do I inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus turned the question back on him and said, well, you know, you're a lawyer. What does the law say? And he says, well, you should love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, yes, do that and you'll live. And the, and the lawyer's like, man, that didn't go what, quite how I wanted it to. <laughs> I think a lot of people went away from Jesus just sort of like with their heads spinning like, what was that? What happened there? And uh, so he, he, he mustered up the, the statement and said to him, who is my neighbor? What about this filthy Roman soldier over here? What if he, I don't have to love him, right? What, what about this wacko zealot out in the desert? Do I have to love him too? What about these Sadducees, you know, these, these rich Roman sympathizers? Do I have to love these people, right? So that's the kind of question he's asking him. Or what about, you know, whatever person in my life is difficult? So that's when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the story, right? The man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a steep road. Uh, it's treacherous. He goes down. He gets beaten up. He gets robbed. He's stripped, left half dead on the side of the road. And then here comes the priest. And instead of helping this fellow Jew, he walks on the other side of the road. And then... The priest comes, and the same thing. He doesn't help the man. He goes on the other side of the road. And then one of these Samaritans, 
One of these people that they absolutely hated and that hated them saw the man and instead of going up to him and spitting on him and saying, get you filthy Jew and kicking him in the side, what does the Samaritan do? He helps him, right? He helps him. He puts him on his own animal. He brought him to an end. He bound his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. He brings him to the end and he says to the innkeeper, take care of him. I'll pay for everything. I'll come back and check in and whatever else you spend, I'll reimburse you. And Jesus says to the lawyer who's testing him, he says to him, well, who was neighbor? Who was the man's neighbor? And the man say, said to him, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, you go and do likewise. <laughs> it's a legal disagreement, right? The, the real question started with, what's eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the law say? And then it goes to, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is like, your neighbor is the person who needs you. That you know, your neighbor is not the member of your group, but the person in need. And so that's how Jesus would handle these, these kinds of questions with them. He, he, would, he would answer them either directly or indirectly using a story, but that made the point just as strongly or even stronger. All right, the second thing that the Pharisees had conflict with Jesus over was challenges to his legitimacy. They would come up to him. Jesus would say something like, I am the light of the world, and they would say, you're just bearing witness about yourself. You know, they just challenge him right on the spot. Uh, or, for example, another time in Matthew 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees actually joined in on this one. They asked for a sign. They're like, Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign. You know, Jesus' ministry is chock full of signs, of wonders, of miracles. You know, and so you have, you have all of this, and, but Jesus refused to perform any tricks for these guys. He said, no, you're not getting a sign. The only sign you're getting is the sign of Jonah. And we come later to discover that that's referring to his death and resurrection, which is the ultimate sign proving who Jesus is. Another time they came up to him and they said to him, you know, you're going around preaching about this kingdom. You say the kingdom is near, the kingdom's at hand. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. When's the kingdom coming, Jesus? When is it coming? This is Luke chapter 17, verse 20. The Pharisees asked that question. It's a reasonable question, but also they might be trying to bait him. Like, give us a date. Give us some way we can discredit you. Give us a sign that, you know, when it, when it happens, then we'll know if you're if you're legit or not. And Jesus says, look, the kingdom's not coming with signs to be observed. You're not going to say, look, here it is or there. For the kingdom of God is in your midst. I mean, here he was standing in front of them, the Messiah, the king himself, and he's right in their midst, and they can't see him, right? Uh, sometimes this is mistranslated, the kingdom of God is within you, which is a terrible translation because it's preposterous to, for Jesus to say to these skeptics that the kingdom of God is within them. They don't believe in it at all, or at least not in relation to Jesus. Uh, and so then he turned to his disciples. This is all Luke 17. You can read it later if you're interested. He turned to his disciples and he explained to them further. And he said to them, look, the kingdom of God is going to come suddenly. It's, it's going to come when people don't expect it. You're, there's not going to be a sign and then you're like, 30 days is going to come. All right. And he uses two examples. He uses Noah's flood and people are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and then suddenly the flood comes, right? Or the other example he gives is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everything's going on just like normal, and then 
fire rains down from heaven. So those are the examples he gives of what it's going to be, or how suddenly it's going to arrive, not with this sign and that sign that clearly shows, oh, it's going to be next Tuesday, right? And then he says it's going to be obvious when it comes. It's going to be like lightning. He's saying this to his disciples. I don't get the impression he's giving this to the Pharisees. But to his disciples, he's saying it's going to be like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to the other. Everyone's going to see it. It's going to be visible. And so that's Jesus dealing with some of these challenges to his uh, legitimacy, his authority. And then the last uh, of the three conflicts that, or, or categories of conflict the Pharisees brought against Jesus relates to his style of doing ministry. So, for example, there was that one time that they brought a paralyzed man through the roof because they couldn't get to him. And Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, it was like somebody dropped a, a theological bomb in that room at that time. And the scribe said to him, this man is blaspheming. He's blaspheming. And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's important to remember that we need to be careful not to side with Jesus' critics. Okay? I know that sounds obvious, but it's, it's not. Because sometimes you read be like, yeah, is he blaspheming? Look, this is what his critics are saying. Um, they thought he was taking God's authority onto himself by forgiving sins. That is not what the text says. Jesus does not say, I forgive you, but your sins are forgiven. Jesus is pronouncing forgiveness. This is why when the crowd saw it, and you have to read this on your own if you're interested, it's Matthew chapter 9, first eight verses. It says, when the crowd saw it, they glorified God who had given such authority to men. After his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus was operating in a way that they misunderstood. So they jumped to the conclusion that he was blaspheming when he was really doing God's will. He wasn't trying to take authority to himself. He wasn't trying to claim to be in God's uh, place. You know, he was doing what God wanted him to do, as we saw earlier. Another issue that came up was, you know, his disciples didn't fast. And Jesus said, look, yeah, they're not fasting. They're going to fast later when I'm gone. You know, and, and so he just kind of dealt with that uh, ministry issue. Another time they, they challenged his miracles. They said to him, you know, the only reason you could do miracles, Jesus, is because you cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Right? And that really gets Jesus going there. Right? And he says, look, first of all, it doesn't make any sense. You're not going to win a battle if you shoot your own soldiers, right? Uh, a house divided against itself can't stand. And, and then he, he really confronts them on it, and he, he says that whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. They were seeing God's Spirit in action in front of them, and they called it demonic. And, and so that would be another incident where they could not deny the miracle, so they had to come up with a different source for it. They're challenging how legitimate Jesus is as a healer, as a prophet, as a man of God. But then the third one, and it's the biggest one, the issue they have with Jesus, uh, as far as his style goes, more than any of the others, is how he associated with sinners. I mean, they just did not like that. They didn't like that about Jesus. Um, Jesus went to a lot of dinner parties. They, they, there was a rumor they floated around about him. The rumors went like this. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus was not a glutton. Jesus was not a drunkard. 
He might have been a friend of tax collectors and sinners, though. <laughs> um, and I, I say that because one of his disciples was a former tax collector. In fact, Matthew is a former tax collector. He goes by the name Levi, and Jesus sees him there at table collecting taxes and says, follow me. The guy leaves everything behind, and he starts following Jesus. Je he shows Jesus hospitality that night, and he has a big banquet. And all his tax collector friends there, because who else are you going to be friends with if you're a tax collector other than other tax collectors, right? And uh, they're all there, and they're having a good feast together, and Jesus is there, and he's got his other disciples, and the Pharisees are just livid. They, it says they grumbled. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus said, and I think I mentioned this earlier, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was his style of doing ministry. He wasn't going to just spend his time with, with the righteous behind closed doors. He was going to go out, he was going to go to a, a, a dinner with somebody, even if that person was spiritually way off, and he was going to sit there with them, and he was going to invite them to repentance, just like a doctor goes to sick people. I guess sick people go to the doctor in our, in our time. The Pharisees, remember, their name means separate. Jesus is doing the opposite of their name. He's together, not separate, right? And so they don't, they don't like that about him. Another time he's eating at a Pharisee's house named Simon, and this woman comes in, right? And, and the way they ate, Jesus' body is, is, is on a, a cushion probably, and his, his head and his, and his torso are facing the table, and his feet would be going away from him. She comes up behind him. She's sobbing. She's weeping. Her tears start falling on Jesus' feet. She starts washing his feet with her tears. She wipes his feet with her hair. She, uh, um, she starts kissing his feet. And then she anoints his feet with ointment from an alabaster flask. And Simon says to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And so Jesus just launches into his story. Hey, once upon a time there were these two guys. They both owed a lot of money. In fact, one of them owed a ton of money, and the other one just owed a lot of money. And they were both forgiven their debts. Whom do you think will, who do you think will love more? And Simon says to him, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And then Jesus said, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus turned to her and said, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> There's conflict there, right? There's some serious conflict there. Those at the table said, who is this that forgives sins? Here we go again, right? Jesus said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He gets her out of there. You know, he sees that what's, what's going on here. And he says, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. You know, and I think they were probably right. She was a sinner. I mean, she wasn't crying for no reason, right? Um, but how in the world did they miss that she was sorrowful? How in the world did they miss that she was trying to change, that she had repentance in her heart? And that's what Jesus saw. He saw that she wanted to repent. He saw that she wanted a fresh start. He gave her a second chance, you know, and he, he told her that she was forgiven. That's what happens when we repent. 
God forgives us. You know, you can't look at Jesus as if he's in a vacuum. You've got the whole Old Testament. You've got the law of Moses. You've got all the prophets, right? And they're constantly telling people, repent. You know, God forgives. This is something they would all have known. And so Jesus sets her free. And they, they, didn't, they didn't like his way of doing things. Uh, another time it says that um, the Pharisees and the scribes said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. <laughs> Jesus is like, yeah, what's your point? No, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus told a triple parable. He told a parable of the lost sheep where you have 100 sheep, one goes off. You leave the 99, you go get the one, and then you come back and you rejoice. And he, and it says there will be more, he says there will be no more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Then he tells a second parable. There was a woman. She had these coins. She lost a coin. She swept her house. She couldn't find it. She was all worried. And then she found it. And then Jesus says, "Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents." And then he told the story of the lost son. We call it the prodigal son, right? where the son went off and, and wasted his, his, his money. And at the end of that, I don't have time to go into that, but at the end of that, the older brother is, is self-centered and he's, he's hard-hearted towards his brother and he won't come into the dinner party. And his dad comes out and, he, and his brother, the older brother says, you never gave me a goat to make friend, marry with my friends. You know, like, are we seriously doing that right now, son? Like, your brother was dead, and now he's alive. And so that was Jesus' perspective on his own style of ministry. He was going after the one who had strayed, that woman who was a sinner. He was going after the, the, the prodigal son, you know, the per and he's calling them back, calling them back to repentance. And he was very successful with the same people group that held the Pharisees in high esteem. So I only have a few minutes left, so let's go on to Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees. And so there are really three that I want to look at. The, the first is, he didn't like how prideful they were. He really came against the pride hard. He, Jesus would say the last should be first and the first would be last. Jesus, um, Jesus told this one story. Let me uh, show you this story here. This is Luke 18. He told this story to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the Pharisees. He said, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. In other words, one the most holy person, the other the least holy person, right? The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And then you have the tax collector over here standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus saw the pride of the Pharisees, and he went after it. He told the story. He confronted them on it many times. Number two was greed. He saw that they were greedy. There's a place in Luke 16 where it says that uh, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And Jesus had told a story to his disciples, a parable of an unjust steward who used his money wisely to make friends. And the Pharisees ridiculed him. 
Jesus, they, they ridiculed Jesus. And so Jesus told the next parable as a zinger to them. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the point of that one is that you're not supposed to hoard what you have, but you're supposed to be generous. You're supposed to give to those in need. Otherwise, you'll face God's judgment is the, basically the point of the parable there. And then we come to Matthew 23. And when it comes to Jesus' criticisms, Matthew 23 is the place to go. It is the heart, it is the densest, most sustained woe section against the Pharisees that Jesus ever does. Look at this in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. So do what they say, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So they want to tell you everything you've got to do, but they don't want to help you at all. There's no, you know, so there's the righteousness, but no compassion. And what is he going after in Matthew 23? Hypocrisy, over and over and over again, like a drumbeat. You'll, you'll see it in just a second here. These guys, you know, it says they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. And he goes on from there. Um, verse 13. Woe to you. So this is where the woes start. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus is strong. Jesus is not wimpy when it comes to conflict. There's no time when Jesus is, in, is going through conflict with these people that we've seen where he just says, you know, I'd rather not talk about this right now. I mean, he's, he's always up for it, right? He, he's, he's got a, a pithy one-liner, you know, the, the sick need a physician, or he's got a story ready for him, or he'll just hit, hit him straight. Woe to you, just like the prophets of old. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is better, the gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? Um, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So they would give to God a tenth of all their possessions, even their herbs in their garden. They would take one-tenth and just give it to God. But yet, even though they were so precise with that, they would neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus is not saying, don't be righteous. He's like, no, do all of it. You're, you're missing part of it. This is the weightier part that you can't forget. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus could not stand hypocrisy. He just had no stomach for it. He saw it, and he's just like warming up to give a woe. I mean, you don't want a woe from Jesus. I don't, you want, I don't want a woe from Jesus, right? And so when we look at the subject of conflict, I think it's just as a way of concluding here, I think it's important to keep in mind that we don't want to be in conflict with Jesus today, right? And so we don't want to have our hearts hardened to those who are repenting, to those who are in need. We don't want to have ourselves so focused on holiness that we forget compassion, nor so focused on compassion that we forget holiness. We need to be like Jesus. We need to do both. And we must be genuine. We cannot be hypocrites. I mean, it's just, and I know in Christianity today, there are plenty of bad examples of hypocrisy. Well, let's be the kind of Christians that are genuine, that are like Jesus was and is. Um, And we need to heal the sickness of greed with the medicine of generosity. That's the only way to do that. And we need to do the right thing in our lives, but not so other people see it. Right? We need to do the right thing, but so God sees it. That's what Jesus is talking about. We humble ourselves and seek God's glory, and He will exalt us in due time. Let us be the kind of believers who recognize our limitations and depend on God's empowering grace to help us do His will in our own time. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.